Libby. And I'm Farron. And this is the tip of the iceberg. Welcome to day 34 of the government shutdown. Welcome to day 34 of the government shutdown. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you laugh or you cry, right? Yep. So we're I'm, laughing. Yep, we're laughing because... <laughs> <laughs> Our government is run by... You should know that <laughs> in that moment of silence, there was just... Like five seconds of sustained sad eye contact yep. between Farron and I. Yep. There was nothing else happening. No. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's a long time. Yeah, it is a long time, and it's ridiculous. And I saw the news that they're making plans for if this goes into like April. Uh huh. Yeah, they're asking government agent. The chief of staff has asked for a list of government agencies that would be affected. If the government stays shut down through March. But it turns out a lot of agencies are already being affected. Like oh. um, our TSA. Oh. Um, the TSA union has said that the the, the risk can't even be... Um, like, they can't even figure out how much of a risk we're in right now with our air traffic because of the shutdown. So non-essential stuff. Yep, non-essentials. Like the TSA. TS- food safety. The FDA. Got it. Nope. Right. Um, food stamps? Yeah, food stamps are gone. Done. Yep. They allotted the February food stamps. They did early and told people to ration. Right. But they will not be sending out SNAP in February. That's right. So and in March, I this was a rumor, so I don't know if this is 100% valid, but WIC in March, right? Yep. WIC and housing. Yep. Yep. So this is like has real impact on our clients. Yeah, I feel like that's all I talk about with my clients. Yeah, people are people are pretty concerned. Mm-hmm. We, so our listeners know, our our program is doing okay. Yes, for now. For now, but the people that we serve, mm-hmm. who depend on public housing and SNAP benefits, or who are federal workers and you know need a paycheck, tomorrow eight hundred thousand Americans are looking at missing their second paycheck. Yeah. I find it especially a bummer because, I don't know, for those of you who are listening to the podcast that don't know, I provide mental health counseling to our clients for Mm -hmm. free. And typically, a huge diagnosis that I work with, a lot of what I do, is related to PTSD from because we have clients who've experienced a lot of trauma. And so typically, we're like processing traumatic events and we're talking about how that's impacted their lives. And for the past like week and a half, two weeks, we haven't even been able to do any really meaningful work in counseling because it's like so the government shut down yeah and this is what possibly my next month looks like and I don't know what I'm gonna do and it's processing that day-to-day stress yeah before we even touch that old stuff and that's been really hard yeah that's yucky it's just miserable for everybody Mm -hmm. it's terrible yeah so hang in there if you're being affected yeah for sure well, we got sidetracked. Well, yeah. Um, last week, we had record-topping listens to our podcast. Yeah, because our story was really good. Yeah, it was a local Wyoming mm-hmm. story. 
about stalking, crazy stalking. And it connected to people. It did. We had people sharing it. We had people talking about it. We're impressed. And the survivor who shared that is brave. Oh my gosh, yeah. <clears throat> so, sure. like, shout out to her. Yeah. Well, if you want your story featured, you know where to find us. You yeah. can always just email it at uh, outreach at yeah. safeproject.org probably is the best email to go through. Um, and we will share it however you want it, whether you want your name in there, whether you want all the names changed or some of the names changed. Um, it's really powerful for people to hear how this is impacting real people. Yep. Not just a headline on, on the, the media, news. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Well, because last week was so popular and listening to it, we had a lot of questions. People were saying, I don't really understand this part or what, what does this look like? And yeah. so throughout the last little bit, we've been having some questions pop up in the eyes of our listeners. And so we thought today we would just do a question and answer and let people have a chance to, Ask their questions. Yeah. Yeah. So we posted it on our social media and we emailed it out to people and we have a list of questions here. Great. Yep. So some of these are from listeners of the podcast. Some of these I've collected from when I've been doing presentations and we've been Mm -hmm. talking about this. These are the questions that people have when it comes to gender-based violence. Yeah. And they tend to be like, um, there's like a theme of like questions that people ask that people tend to ask the same ones over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I think that's this is a good list of questions that people are curious about. When you said there's a theme of questions, I just imagined that we had put out a theme. Like, these are only tropical questions allowed, oh. or like Disney questions, yep. or whatever the theme might be. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> that's not what I meant. No, there's a through line to these questions. Yeah, they could sure. be grouped together. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll just start with the first one. And this one was one that came out of one of the stalking podcasts. We did a couple with stalking mm-hmm, stories. Mm-hmm. And one person um, submitted, when I was listening to the stalking episode on the podcast, I'm not sure which one it was because we did a couple, but mm-hmm. I found myself wondering what the exact definition for stalking is. How do we pin people in stalking cases? I think this is a good question because I think a lot of people wonder where that line is mm-hmm. between actual stalking that could be legally charged versus like this is getting creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So every state has formal definitions for stalking. Um basically stalking is it's a pattern of behavior that would cause a reasonable person to fear for their safety, essentially, Mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Yeah, I pulled up the Wyoming legal definition. Mm -hmm. Has it not been updated since 2007? Is that problematic? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. This is up to date. This website is. And the last statute they have about stalking is 2007. Interesting. Nothing has changed in stalking since yeah, I don't know between the, 2007 to 2019. Yeah, I don't know if that okay. has been... If that's... They're probably behind with the government shutdown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. They probably are. Okay, so in this episode, it co- um, excuse me, in this definition, yeah. it covers a few things. So it says... 
so I guess this is like it has to fit in these categories for it to count Mm -hmm. or it could be any of these things so a course of conduct means a pattern of conduct composed of a series of acts over any period of time evidencing a continuity of purpose wow so harass could be done yeah, they're they, not limited to verbal threats, written threats, lewd or obscene statements or images, vandalism, non-consensual physical contact, directed at a specific person or family of a specific person. Blah 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 blah. And it would cause a reasonable person to suffer substantial emotional, emotional distress. distress. Oh, your eyes are good. And which does in fact seriously alarm the person toward whom it is directed. So it's a course of conduct intended to harass. And it's a pattern of behavior, and yeah. that's an important that's an important piece of stalking is that it's a pattern of behavior. It's not just one instance of somebody making contact with you or even maybe a couple of instances. Mm-hmm. It has to be a, a course of conduct that shows a pattern of behavior that's intended to harass a person and make yeah. them be afraid. Yeah, it goes on to say that it could be communication, like whether it's anonymous or not, um, over the telephone, mechanical, electronic, verbal, whatever, following a person... Um, placing a person under surveillance by remaining present outside his or her school, place of employment, vehicle, etc. Or otherwise engaging a course of conduct that harasses another person. Yeah. So I think when I was talking to someone about this, they said, that seems vague. When we're talking about stalking, it seems vague as to what, how you could... And in the word of this question, pin people in stalking cases. And I get it because this is kind of, it's a lot Mm -hmm. that can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of different things can, uh, people who want to stalk people can do so in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, And so it's difficult to pin somebody with stalking if you're just looking at like one or two ways of doing things because it can be a lot of different things and it can be very subtle or it can be really really blatant stalking i think sometimes it's hard to prove too it is hard to prove because a lot of times people that stalk people come out of relationships yeah and if that was a scary relationship then you learn how that person communicates with you. Right. And so maybe, like, I think in a previous podcast, we talked about how when the guy took his wedding ring off, that's how she knew there was danger because it was going to hit her. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's something really simple like that, or, like, maybe a certain type of flower meant something, mm-hmm. then that's hard to pin. Like, if you have somebody who leaves a certain type of flower on your door. Right. Anonymously. Right. Nobody's going to take that really seriously, but for you, that means a lot. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's one of the reasons that stalking is scary because. Well, and this is why people who are going through a stalking situation shouldn't go through it by themselves. And it's really important to reach out for support from an advocate, a program like ours, because we can help somebody to um, make sense of what's going on and determine if that, that is stalking behavior and then what steps can be taken um, and safety plan around that. And so what I often told survivors when I was doing a lot more advocacy was keep records of everything, Mm -hmm. you know, all contact, take screenshots of text messages and phone calls, 
if you have the ability to take a picture of someone sitting outside your house, do that. Because the more evidence that you have of this course of conduct and pattern of behavior, the more helpful that is um, if you're filing a protection order, if you're getting law enforcement involved. So the second part, how do we pin people in stalking cases? I think the biggest way is that victims of stalking have to track it track it Mm -hmm. and and because you have to be able to show that pattern of behavior over a period of time i think you're right yeah good question yeah um the next one is what should i do if someone i love is in a domestic violence situation but doesn't think that they are complicated yeah complicated I think that being in a violent... I've heard from so many survivors that being in a violent relationship with somebody is is very... It's very hard to um, for them to have realized that they were in that relationship when they were in it. Mm-hmm. That it's something that they recognized more once they were able to get out of it and reflect on what was going on with the relationship. But in the moment, they didn't see the abuse for what it was. Um and so it's especially important that, like, the people around them support them and point out things that are unhealthy. Um, and it's normal for that person to say, oh, no, like, that's not, we're not, this isn't unhealthy. That's not what that looks. That's not, that's not what he meant. You're misunderstanding. That's not what he or she meant by that. You or, took it out of context. They're just protective. Right. They're not being controlling and jealous. Um, so that can be really hard. But know that, like, that's also really normal. And this is tricky, too. I personally have found myself in the situation where mm-hmm. someone I loved or cared about was in, uh, um, I mean, I would say at very least unhealthy relationship. Yeah. And they thought everything was cloud nine and that it was super, super normal with what they were going through. And for me being super protective, I was like, um, no, code red, get out. We're ejecting this. We're not doing this. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a fine line when I was in that situation between saying, like, holding my ground and saying, no, this is unsafe and I don't like it for you and not moving from that and being more subtle about it. Because if I follow my gut and bust up in there and we're like, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. We're over. Right. Then most likely I'm the one that's going to be ejected from that relationship. Yeah, for Real sure. Real talk, right? Yeah. Because they're going to be like, wow, you don't trust me. I can't trust don't you. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's what I want to do because oh, I yeah. see this person getting hurt. And so sometimes it's being the person that lasts, mm-hmm. that gives those reminders like, huh, that's not what my relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. Or I don't. I've never experienced that. I think that's kind of weird Mm -hmm. when they're telling you things about a relationship and being the person that's there to talk to about that. Yeah. But that is crappy. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks. And we're often in that situation as advocates. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for victims of domestic violence to know that their support system is going to support them even through going back. Right. Like, it's very common for a survivor of domestic violence, you know, it takes seven to ten times to get out of a relationship like this and stay out of it. And so it's very likely that that person will return to that relationship after they leave the first time or the second time or even the third, fourth time. And so it's important for their support system, their family, their friends, their advocate, their counselor, whoever, 
to remain a constant source of support and not get fed up with the drama and the crap and say, you know, I just can't deal with your drama anymore. Even though that's totally reasonable to be fed up and yeah. to be frustrated, the, the the thing that person needs most is that constant support. Especially Because if not, you're just driving exactly. him or her into the arms of this abuser. That's right. Who's going to just control every aspect of their life. Especially because abusive personalities are masterful manipulators. Yeah. And they are so good at tearing people down and making them feel like they are worthless. And so if you are just another person that feels that they are worthless or that they think thinks that, then it's just part of the isolation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like one of the things that I learned early on in this work was with parents of children who are in unhealthy relationships is don't talk badly about Mm -hmm. that your child's partner and don't do things that are going to reinforce the bad things that he or she is telling them about you. Like your mom's a bitch. Your mom hates me. You know, your dad's the worst because if she's hearing all of that from him and then you're being, you're frustrating her by cutting him down and not letting her go out of the house and, you know, doing what reasonable parents would do to protect their child in a moment of feeling really, really afraid. Then that just kind of reinforces that message that he's sending her and trying to isolate her and and remove you from her life. That can be really hard, though. Yeah. So I understand why parents and family members and friends struggle to remain that support system. Yeah. And not, quote-unquote, disrespect the intimate partner who's abusive. Um, by, you know, making comments and stuff about them. A phrase that sometimes I think is helpful when I'm talking to people in this situation is when I'm talking to people who might think that their relationship is okay, it might not be great, but it's not unhealthy or abusive, is, wow, I just feel like I've seen you happier before. Yeah. And I hate to see you in this place where you feel so unhappy. Yeah. And that kind of pulls all the attention away from the abusive personality or the external thing and focuses on them. And it's like, well, why do I feel unhappy? Right. Where is this coming from? Right. She's right. I am acting differently. And when did that start? Yeah. It's pretty tough. Yeah. But I think this also brings up a good point too, of how sometimes people that when people we love become involved in unhealthy or unsafe relationships we become secondary victims to that yeah because we aren't experiencing the abuse firsthand but we are dealing with that and when that happens we become secondary victims and it's important to realize that because we need resources in those situations too, right right because it's impossible to go through on your own yeah yeah it can be really emotionally draining and exhausting yeah. to be a support system. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So if you find yourself in the role of secondary victim or in a situation like this, reach out and get help and support in that way because that's a lot to go through on your own, I think. Yeah. Hmm. It sure is. Um, let's see. What is a good one to do next? Ooh, okay. Back to the stalking episodes. Um, when I listened to the episode about stalking, where you talked about someone you knew who experienced stalking in Wyoming, I can't help but wonder if there was anyone in my life who was experiencing that. Are there any warning signs or ways I can tell? 
Mm. Yeah. Well, and I, I think Farron and I talked about how we had really no idea that this person was going through this when they were. Right. So that's a good point. I mean, I, I bet people listen to this and were like, well, who else is out yeah, there? Yeah, is there someone in my life that's yeah. going through something similar and I just don't know it? <sighs> and I think some people are just really good at maintaining that balance. Yeah. And I think for this person, for the person we talked about last week, she had said like her mom and her friends and stuff had no idea that she was going through what yeah. she was going through. I mean, a couple of her friends knew cause they happened to like be there when something happened. But right. for the most part, people weren't really aware cause she did a really good job of just trying to maintain normal. So sometimes like, and I know that people on the outside tend to feel bad about that. Like they feel guilty. Like I should have, I should have noticed something. Um, but some people are just really good at making things look okay. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds like she was really good at just maintaining normalcy. Yeah, I think so. Because if your own mother, who knows you really well, and her and her mom are very close, doesn't recognize something, I think you're doing a really good job just maintaining that. Yeah, I agree. And, sh- and putting on a brave face. So sometimes it's impossible to tell. Yeah. And that's not your fault. No. No, I mean, her own mom didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I would assume they talked quite a bit. Yeah. Hmm. Warning signs. Mm. So say someone doesn't, isn't as skilled at keeping that normal face going and that normal life situation happening. What, what type of warning signs might you see? Hmm. Things that could slip through the cracks. Maybe... Someone who is hesitant to go go places suddenly, mm-hmm. like they don't really um, want to go out. Like if they're someone who really likes going to dinner or going to the bar or you know socializing out with friends, and now suddenly like they're just like not wanting to do that, wanting to stay home. Um, I think for in her case, I think that could have been. Maybe a red flag. Yeah, I Because think so. I know that that person that was stalking her kept showing up and accusing her of doing crazy things just when she was trying to, like, be out with her friends. Yeah. Um, so I just think, like, a, I think you should always be on the lookout, even if it's not necessarily because they're being stalked. But I think you should always be on the lookout for any drastic change in behavior that your friends are right. exhibiting. For any reason. I mean, it could be they're depressed. It could be you know, something's off with them. Then you should look into Then you it. should look into it. It may not be that they're being stalked, but something's yeah. clearly not right. I think sometimes another sign of whether it's stalking or whatever is like a hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden they're looking over their shoulder and they're being super cautious. They might be jumpy. Um, they're being very vigilant in keeping themselves safe. Mm-hmm. And if that's a difference yeah. than what's been happening in the past, some people are just super hypervigilant. Yeah. I am. Right. Um, me yeah. too. But not everybody is. Uh, yeah. I'm always going to, when I go into the bathroom, check behind the shower curtain. Yeah. Do you do that? No. No? When I go, when I use the bathroom mm-hmm. in someone else's house, oh, I'm I guess always it's someone else's sure, house, I might. No, I'm might. always sure that there's someone behind the shower curtain. Oh, I don't yikes. know why. Maybe I've seen one too many scary movies. Probably. But that's an example movies. That's an example of hypervigilance, yeah. right? So if you're seeing that in someone who hasn't had that before... Yeah, that's weird. All of a sudden, check in all the shower curtains. Yeah, that's concerning. And that'll be a red flag, too. Yeah, probably. 
Yeah. I think it's hard to tell. Or if someone's constantly, like, um, having to, like, silence their phone. Mm. You know, like, if, if somebody is just, if it's obvious that, like, they're bothered by something with their phone, somebody keeps calling them or texting them. If they get a bunch of messages. Yeah, and they're just, like, visibly frustrated, maybe ask, like, what's going on with your phone? Yeah. Why do you seem frustrated? Geez, somebody's trying to get a hold of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds, too, like in the story we read last week of the person we know, she made a lot of excuses Mm -hmm. over time. Like, oh, sorry. I don't remember them now. But there was, like, excuse after excuse after excuse. And if you hear that, I mean, we see that in situations of domestic violence as well. Mm -hmm. There's lots of excuses as to why this behavior is happening. And sometimes they don't always add up. One of the things that she did say to me once was that she had received flat. I know that he, we had talked about how he sent her flowers a couple of times Yeah, and she had received them at work one day and she didn't really express any like excitement about that or like to her coworkers. She seemed annoyed. Like she seemed kind of like, okay, thanks. Yeah. And I guess I would maybe cause I'm nosy, but I feel like if you got flowers at work, that's it. Yeah. That's like, most people think yeah. that's really nice. And if you were just like, okay, I'd probably say, like, do you not want those flowers? Hmm. Again, because I have that mind that I, that, I assume everyone's a perpetrator. Me too. So, And I think it's hard for but us to I say, think like. that's a little weird. If your friend gets flowers at work or your coworker and they just act, like, bothered by it, I would probably say, that not that, like, aren't you excited to have gone flowers at work? But I think we tend to be way on the other side. Yeah. Because I, I even remember one time I was at dinner with my younger sister, who was a teenager, and she got, like, ten text messages in a row, and I was like, hmm. <laughs> Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Who is this? Yeah, so, who is that crazy person? What is this about? Me. And it was her friend. I'm like, well, so how's that relationship? And I was, like, pressing, and she's like, okay, calm down. Yeah. This is normal. This is fine. Yeah. So I think we tend to be on the other end of... That's true. Looking way too much at it. But still, I think that's suspect. I would, too. Yeah. Like, most people... I work with an office. We work in an office full of women, and anytime anyone gets flowers, people are excited. Yeah. So if somebody here was like, ew, about that, I would be calling the flower shop to find out. (laughs) (laughs) But you... Because, again, (laughs) that's an unhealthy boundary. really nosy. And I would be so panicked about it. But totally that's just that's, my, that's where my mind goes. I'm like, just imagining. Olivia after work. I'm just imagining. I get flowers at work, and I'm like, oh, that's nice. And I just push them aside and don't talk I about it. I would be it. distraught about it. You, like, leave the conference area, and you're like, excuse me, I have to make a call. <laughs> I would. You call every flower place in I would in be Laramie. distraught if, you, if, if I thought somebody was stalking you. Oh, my god. That's how my brain goes, man. Oh... This is what happens. And anyone who does this work who's listening is nodding agree. their head going, yep, that's where my brain goes to. So Some, I don't feel bad about it. Sometimes I take different routes home from work depending Ooh. on the day. Wow, I don't do that. You're never worried that you're going to get followed? No. Okay, um, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. And the, the shower curtain thing was a joke okay. as well. So well, That's uh, a story for another time. <laughs> we can process that after this. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no, but that's a good question. Yeah. And it's never, you can never tell who in your life is dealing with that. Yeah. It's, so. That can be really hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Next question. What do you think? Um, here's a sexual assault question. Oh, okay. I was a victim of sexual assault many years ago. I used to think I was fine, but as time goes on, I get more and more upset about it. Some days I can't stop thinking or remember what happened to me. How do I move on from this? I thought I was over this. Mm. Yeah. 
That's, yeah, that's crappy. Yeah. I think we hear that a lot, too. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty common thing where people come in and they're like, I thought I was fine, and this is all my past, this is all my past, and now all of a sudden it's my whole life and I can't move on. What's what's happening? And I'm not a mental health professional yeah. like you are, so I think you can speak more to like the reason that that happens. I just know that in my experience as a human mm-hmm. and also somebody who's worked with a lot of survivors of gender-based violence that like even if you're okay and even if you've healed from mm-hmm. your trauma and you're you're moving on it's never gone right it's not like something like bleeps it out of your memory unfortunately to where it's just gone out of your mind right and so there are going to be things 10 years later 20 years later that could potentially trigger mm-hmm. a memory and well, even if it doesn't derail you yeah. it's unpleasant and that's normal and I think it's interesting when she's saying that she maybe can't remember or I, I don't know if that was a typo or if she's saying she couldn't remember what happened to her or what you're saying is like those memories are gone. The interesting thing about repressed memories where it's mm-hmm. like something happened to you but you can't exactly remember what it was is that physical memory is gone. Like you don't remember what happened or what it looked like but the emotional memory can sometimes still be there Mm. so that's why you get triggered and you're like whoa what is happening yeah by like a smell or something because the emotions are still there but the physical you're like where is this coming from i don't even know yeah um a thing i think is interesting and i am not the be all and end all when it comes to like knowing about mental health or psychology but something that someone told me in a class once was um you don't process stuff until you feel safe enough to do it mm-hmm. and so if years <clears throat> if years went by where it didn't bother you and you could kind of keep going um and all of a sudden it's coming back it might be because you're in a place where you feel safe enough to process that that makes sense it's kind of like your body's natural alarm clock that's like okay i'm ready to deal with this now yeah that's what's happening that can make sense um might not be the case because everybody's a little bit different right but um if that is your situation and all of a sudden it's popping up could just be because you're finally ready to to deal with it yeah that makes sense think about what's happening yeah so i would say because i am a mental health counselor (laughs) get mental health services yeah because that is hard to process on your own Mm -hmm. and really messy yeah and can help when somebody can walk you through it yeah in a way that's safe and healthy Mm -hmm. and at your own speed yep yeah i agree yeah so that's my thought i don't know if that makes sense that makes sense to me um but that does happen all the time oh yeah that we see I mean, and it doesn't even, you know, I think anybody can relate to that, even if we are all victims of some kind of trauma, right? whether it's the death of a parent or a car accident or whatever. It doesn't even have to be something. You fell off your bike that one time. Yeah. You were bullied on elementary school. Totally. And like, even if you're fine and you're, you know, you're not suffering with maybe PTS or PTSD, you're still going to have reminders periodically throughout your life because your brain stores that. Right. And that's normal. Absolutely. And so, yeah, the best way when she, he or she said, how do I move on? Like you said, I think going to therapy and having someone help you to process mm-hmm. that yeah. is going to probably be the best way to do that. And we advocate for that all the time with our clients to yeah. get mental health treatment. And if you're not ready to go and sit down and do the whole thing with a therapist, which is super scary, and yeah. I get that, um, there's this thing called bibliotherapy, 
which I think is a great stepping stone to maybe being ready for therapy. And basically that's a fancy word for doing your own research and reading self-help books. Um, there's a ton of good resources out there for people who are experiencing, you know, past trauma. Yeah, me too. I read them all the time and it, it can help you become more comfortable talking about it or thinking about it. And that might, that might do it for you. Yeah. It could work. I love my favorite author. I don't, I don't even know if you care. Do you know Brene Brown? Yes. I don't even know if you would consider her self-help. Oh, I think so. She's amazing. Oh, I love She's her. She's amazing. And I know so many survivors who just live for Brene Brown. Yeah. So if you are a survivor of gender-based violence or child abuse mm-hmm. or, I mean, she's just, she writes so many cool things about vulnerability and um, being able to, like, stand alone in your trauma and move forward. She's great. Yeah, anyway, she that's my really plug. Good. I would read everything of hers. Yeah, exactly. So there's certain things that work for you and help you kind of, yeah. like, move forward from that. Yeah. Um, she's really great. Yeah. So, so get help whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be a yeah. formal psychologist client relationship. It could be something like buying right. a good book and reading it I, to try. Yeah, I yeah. do that all the time. Great. Terrific. Um, we probably have time for one more. Okay. Um, what is the hardest case you have ever worked personally? Oh, gosh. Well, we really... get that question all the time. I, yeah. What's the craziest hotline call you ever took? What's the scariest time? Like, what's been your scariest case? You know... We had this list, and we were like, oh, we're going to think about that while we're podcasting. And then I didn't think about it at all. No. And now I don't even know. Do you know yours? Um, I mean, I it's hard to say, like, the hardest. I have a couple that stand out. Yeah, I, I do, too. I mean, yeah. I think that I definitely, there are a lot. I mean, they're all hard. There mm-hmm. are a few that are that are harder than others. Cases that involve... Um, you know, I have, I have a lot of, um, I have a hard time with single moms in the shelter with their kids Mm -hmm. because I'm a mom. And so I often, I really do relate to being a mom and having little ones. And I just think how scary that must feel. Um, so those are always hard for me. I mean, similarly, I think the hardest cases that I have worked were in my time, it, so it was a different program. It wasn't at SAFE, but it was in a domestic violence program all the same. And I was a child advocate there. And because you're a single mom, you connect with them. I am a child, basically. So yeah, you I can connect with the kids really well, that's which well. is good. Yeah. And so that's kind of what sticks out to me is there are a couple of cases from that. I mean, do you want to tell a story from your eyes? Um, so for me, I think the case and the client that stick out the most to me because... I think the system, the criminal justice system, didn't work for her, Mm -hmm. Um, which a lot of my burnout as an advocate came from that system. Um, A long time ago, we, we were in a completely different place in our community with prosecution and investigations, and the investigation of this case was fine, um, but the prosecution of the case... Um, basically my client was very violently sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a weapon involved and which is unusual for there to be firearms involved. Um, and 
she has spoken publicly about her situation and has done a lot of really awesome work on behalf of survivors and policy since then. And so I feel like I can, I can talk about how that case affected me. Um, she was wonderful. Um, and he was not prosecuted for sexually assaulting her because they got the, the gun back, the evidence back from the crime lab, and there was no DNA on the firearm. And so the prosecutor at that time, who is no longer a prosecutor in that office, I will say that. In fact, it's a whole Probably different administration. Best. So it was not our current county attorney or her administration. Um, sat there with this client and myself and basically convinced her that he was going to lose the case. There was no way they could win it. You know, it was going to be a he said, she said. He would prosecute it if she wanted him to, but that, you know, it was probably going to be a, a, a fail. And I remember her sitting there just bawling mm-hmm. and telling me, like, I can't go through this if he's just going to walk away not guilty. So they were able to drop all of the um, sexual assault, felonious restraint, kidnapping. I mean, he was facing like 85 years or more. Oh my gosh. Um, they were able to drop all of that and get him to plead guilty to stealing the firearm because he was a felon and he had stolen that gun. And so he did go to prison um, for not enough time. I mean, he's still in prison, but um, for stealing the gun that he used to sexually assault my client. But that was hard for me because I look at where we are now in Albany County with our current. Um, like our current team as a sexual assault response team and the current county attorney that we have and the way we're doing things now. And I just feel like if that had happened now, it might look a lot different than it did for her then. But the flip side of that is, I mean, it was a really hard case and I cried a lot of tears over that and with her, Mm -hmm. but she is amazing. And she went on to go in front of our state legislature to fight for a sexual assault protection order bill that we had been fighting for, for years And she stood up and said, this happened to me. And they had to look at her and hear her story. And as a survivor, she was so brave in making change. Um, And she's doing amazing now. Like, she's got a wonderful, beautiful family. She's doing great. It it showed me, it really was a lesson to me that, like, criminal prosecution isn't the end-all, be-all for survivors. Mm -hmm. And that they can move on and heal. But um, that was hard. That sucked. That sucked. That, and I was a new advocate. I mean, I had only been here for about a year and a half when I started working with her. So that's, that's probably my yuckiest just because it made the, it was just shitty. Did it, it impact you after in the way you did advocacy? Oh, was yeah. there a moment where you're like, I just cannot anymore? It impacted me a lot after. Um, and I'm just mostly really grateful that I have the relationship that I have with our prosecutors mm-hmm. as an advocate and as a director so that I can be, we can be very honest with each other yeah. and I can express if I have a concern or a frustration and I feel like that's heard and that I hear them. And like I said, we've changed so much as a community um, since that happened. And I, I just wish that, I wish that Peggy, Peggy Trent were in office when that happened because yeah. I don't think it would have happened the way it did. I think we would have seen something different for her. But shoulda, woulda, coulda's wishing is pointless. I'm just glad that our... That it all worked out. It worked out, and she's beautiful, and she has a beautiful family. That's great. But that was was shitty. That was tough. Um, I think my hardest case 
um, did not happen here, mm-hmm. happened elsewhere a while ago when I was a child advocate. And for people who don't know what child advocacy is, um, in the context that I was practicing it, it was a little bit different in that I was working in a shelter and basically doing, working primarily with children and families by extension, but my focus was the kids and making sure they had good safety plans and making sure they were safe and kind of helping them navigate that because sometimes kids get they fall through the cracks, especially when you're working in a big shelter. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I have a lot of hard stories from that because kids are hard sometimes. Yeah. But I think one that sticks out to me is I was working with this girl and she was probably like between five and seven. And this girl had a crazy trauma history. Mm. And I think that she had experienced trauma and abuse. And I don't know that firsthand because it was never told to me, but that was just kind of me picking up the pieces. But I think the thing that was most telling for her was her mom had a lot of struggles and she was frequently in shelters, domestic violence shelters. And when she wasn't in domestic violence shelters, she was in abusive households. Mm. And there was a lot of substance abuse happening. And she just, they they had a rough go of it. Yeah. That mom was dealing with a lot. And the kid fell through the cracks and was just kind of dragged along without any choice in that situation. Mm. And so she had a really hard life. And I remember one time I was talking to her with her. And she was quiet, which I think you would be, you know, when you were in that situation. But we, I was trying to talk to her and she just wasn't wanting to talk. So I was like, you know what, let's just go play for a little bit, hoping to kind of like break the ice a little bit and to work through that. And so we, I took her to this big playroom we had and I don't know who was in there before me because it was a mess. Mm-hmm. I remember this. <laughs> it was such a mess. And there were, like, stuffed animals everywhere and a jump rope and, like, papers all over the floor and it was markers everywhere. And it was just a mess. But in the corner, there was this dollhouse. And the dollhouse was equally a mess. Mm-hmm. Like, there was furniture tipped upside down. And there were people laying on the ground. And there were... It was just... It was a mess. And so um, when she walked in, she like completely ignored the whole mess of the room and walked directly back to the dollhouse. And rather than playing with the dolls in the dollhouse, she pulled everything out of the dollhouse and cleaned it up and put the furniture back where it went and just put this house back together. And I think it was super hard for me and why I remember it, because I think in that moment, I just thought about all of the times that she had probably done that in yeah, her house. Yeah. And rather than play like a normal kid would, her focus was on making things right mm-hmm. and putting the furniture back together. And for her, that was the only way she knew how to play yeah. and to be normal. That was her responsibility. Um, that's hard. It was super duper sad. Yeah, that's sad. And I still think about her all the time. I really I'm hope sure she's okay. But I'm sure you do. Chances are she's still living a really hard yeah. life. Unfortunately, that's the reality. Yeah. So, I mean, there are really hard cases. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, I can think of so many times that I've, that I've cried over. Me too. Well, and I think too that like we sit on this podcast and we laugh and we joke and we have a good time and it's, it's this interesting thing about what we portray on this podcast because like there are funny things right you either laugh or you cry but the work that we do is really serious Mm -hmm. it is (laughs) and and it pulls at your heartstrings yeah and that doesn't always personal yeah it doesn't always come across on the podcast yeah no 
Because what a bummer podcast that would be. <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk about... If we were just sitting here crying the whole time? <laughs> the next episode will be about all of the children and all the different toys and the next episode how they don't have any. All of our secondary trauma. That's right. And we're going to bring Matt Gray in right. to manage that. For first, first hand look at our group therapy session. Yes. God. <laughs> for service providers. Mm, people would be like, mm, I'm out. Um, I would definitely listen to that. Would you? I would too, because I'm free. 100%. But I yeah, choose to watch too. terrible murder documentaries for self-care, so of course I'd listen to something um, devastating and depressing. My self-care the last week was reading a fiction book about human trafficking, so okay. obviously we... Uh, we're crazy yeah but whatever self-care looks like to you sure right okay (laughs) all right oh that took a really sad turn no i feel melancholy me too but that's okay that's right because we'll be fine the thing about us is we switch tasks like that (laughs) so yeah who knows what's gonna happen we'll get distracted as soon as we leave this room yep Yep. just bury it all we will this is what we do uh, but the questions are good. Yeah, they were good questions. They are good questions, and they're questions that we get a lot. Yeah, they are. Um, um, I think we should address this one question. Do you ever feel unsafe because um, of the work that you do? Mm. Even really, just really quickly. Yeah, that's that is that's my mom's question. biggest. Every time I call my mom and I'm like, today was really crazy, or we have a scary situation, she's like, you know, this is just this needs to stop. New you job. don't need to do this anymore, Farron. Okay, you don't need to be a hero anymore. We all get it. You're a great person. Please go and get a job in like an accounting office where nobody's going to come in and do anything crazy. Guns blaring. This is just, my mom is always like very scared for me. I had a very similar conversation on the phone with my mom last night. So oh, I think. It's a mom thing. I'd probably be worried about my daughter or my son, too. The truth is that, yeah, there are times that feel unsafe. Yeah, there are. Mm -hmm. Because that's the reality. Yep. And I think it'd be silly to sit here and say, no, I never feel nervous or unsafe about... um, And do I take measures in my life to make sure that perpetrators have a harder time knowing who I am or what my kids look like or who my husband is? Sure. We have a pretty, like major security system at our office That's right. at the advice of our police department. Um, we so take, we take safety seriously. We do. we do take it really seriously mm-hmm. because the reality is, is domestic violence work is really dangerous work. Yep. So it's dangerous for cops. It's dangerous for everybody. First responders for us, it's scary stuff. So yes, but <laughs> we take our safety seriously. Yeah, so it's a very valid fear, but we've taken every measure to that we can think of to mm-hmm. kind of limit. Limit and lower the chances that anything yeah. scary could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have more questions... Submit them. Submit them. Or if you have a story you want us to share, or whatever you want to say, a comment, you hate the podcast and want us to know. Oh, I mean, nobody thinks that. Free speech, right? But nobody thinks that. Right. Never has anyone thought a negative thought about our podcast. No. Outreach at safeproject.org. Yep. Yep. Send them our way. Okay. And if you ever need any help or services from us, you want us about that hotline number? 745-3556. 307 3556 <laughs> Yeah. Hit us up. Yep. We Anytime. 24 hours a day. Um, and try and survive the government shutdown. Oh, boy. We'll check in next week. 
It'll be over Ooh. by next week, Fern. Okay. Say it five times. It'll be over. I hope so. It'll be over. I hope that Chuck and Nancy and Donald get it all worked out. It'll be over. It'll be over. Our friends at the White House. Our friends at the White House. <laughs> <laughs>